Lord Jesus, we gladly bow before you as our king. We gladly offer our praises to you, give you honor as our king. Lord, we thank you for the way Palm Sunday reminds us of that reality. You are our prophet from God. You are our priest that is our mediator with God. You are also our king. And I pray that you would do for us um, what you do uh, for those who are blinded from seeing who Jesus is, Lord, that you'd open our eyes to see him in his kingship, see him in his lordship, see him in his glory. Um, for the first time, maybe for some in this room or listening online, and even for those who have trusted Christ, that you would just expand our vision of Christ, give him a, that we would see him more truly and then have hearts that honor him uh, more appropriately. So we ask you to do what um, only you can do. We can't do this ourselves. We can't see truth in your word and understand it. We can't have hearts that respond the right way unless you work by the power of your Holy Spirit. So we're asking you to do that in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Most of us are familiar with the events of the first Palm Sunday, but we might not be clear about why Jesus rode on a donkey on his visit to Jerusalem or why the crowds responded the way they did or why some people were not very happy on that joyful day. Our text for today shows us some of the claims Jesus was making about himself and some responses to those claims. So if you have your Bible, please turn with me to Matthew 21 as we look at an eyewitness account of the triumphal entry. Matthew 21. Verse 1 says, When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. So why is Jesus deliberately prearranging to have a donkey to ride? Why not just walk into Jerusalem unannounced like he did on a previous visit? So in John 7, we read in verse 10, when his brothers had gone up to the feast, which is in Jerusalem, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. So on that visit to Jerusalem, he didn't call attention to himself by making a big public entrance. But on Palm Sunday, this time, he is intentionally making a statement. And verse 4 and 5 explain that. This took place, this getting a donkey to ride on into Jerusalem took place to fulfill what was spoken 
through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you. Gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. There's more than one way to make a statement. A politician can call a press conference and make a big announcement. A basketball team in March Madness can send a message in the opening minutes that it's going to be a very physical game. And you can make a statement about yourself by how you arrive somewhere. So some of us were here when President Bush visited Sioux City a number of years ago. He didn't just drive here in his own car. He didn't come in on United Airlines and rent a car at the airport. He arrived on Air Force One and was driven in a presidential limousine and escorted by a host of secret service agents and a whole retinue of others. And when people saw that, there was no doubt in anyone's mind who was making an arrival in the city. There's only one person in the world that makes an entrance like that. And making an entrance into Jerusalem riding on a donkey was reserved for exactly one person in human history. And that's what verse 5 is about. It's a quote from Zechariah chapter 9, written over 500 years before the first Palm Sunday. The prophet had said, your promised king isn't here yet. He's coming in the future. And this is how you will recognize him when he appears. He will enter the city not riding in a royal chariot, not riding on an impressive war horse, but humbly riding on a donkey. That's how you'll know your king's here. Well, 500 years come and go, and God's promised king does not arrive. But on the first Palm Sunday, Jesus makes a point to get a donkey for his entrance into Jerusalem. And we're specifically told he did that to fulfill the words of the prophet spoken in Zechariah 9. So Jesus is making a clear statement. I am the one that Zechariah was writing about. I am your king. And many in the crowd had some level of recognition for what Jesus was claiming. Look at verse 8 and 9. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds were going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So spreading coats and palm branches on the road were ways of expressing a special welcome. It was a symbolic way of expressing honor. It's comparable to the way we roll out the red carpet for a visiting dignitary or celebrity. And they also said some things that showed they at least partially understood what Jesus was claiming about himself. Hosanna means salvation or save now. So some perhaps meant you're the one who can save us. You're the one who will rescue us. Son of David was a title referring to God's promise that the Messiah, the Christ, the promised deliverer and king, he would be a descendant physically of King David. And so if you go over to Matthew 22, you see in verse 42, Jesus is asking the Pharisees a question. 
What do you think about the Christ? That means the anointed one, the Messiah, the God's promised king and deliverer. Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. So there's this direct connection in everyone's mind. Son of David is the promised one God will send as king and deliverer. And when the crowd shout, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they're quoting from Psalm 118 and saying that Jesus is the one who's coming on God's behalf. He's coming to carry out God's mission. He's worthy to be held in high honor and esteem. But there's still some confusion about Jesus as he enters the city. Look at verse 10 and 11. When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, who is this? And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. So in spite of clearly announcing by riding on a donkey, I am your king, and some people got that, when he gets to the city itself, many are stirred up, which means disturbed or agitated. And they're asking the all-important question, who is this Jesus? And the answer they get back from the crowd is, this is the prophet Jesus. And Jesus is a prophet. He's not less than a prophet. He is an official spokesman from God who speaks with God's full authority. But he's so much more than a prophet. And Jesus will make that clear as the story continues. So look at verse 12 and 13. Back in 21. Oh, 12 and 13. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. So Jesus is making another statement, and it's a clear statement about his authority. Drop down to um, verse 23. When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him while he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? Jesus said to them, I will ask you a question, which if you tell me, I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John was from what source? From heaven or from men? And they began reasoning among themselves saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, then why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the people, for they all regard John as a prophet. And answering Jesus, they said, we don't know. He also said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So do you see what he's doing there? The religious leaders are asking, who do you think you are to do what you've been doing around here? What gives you the right to knock over tables and chairs and drive out all the buyers and sellers from the temple. And by asking the question about John the Baptist, Jesus narrows down the options to just two answers. The authority I had to do that is either from heaven or it's just from people. 
Those are the only choices. And Jesus was saying, I have the rightful authority to say what goes in God's house. Verse 14, And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. Which is another amazing statement. Jesus demonstrates he has the power to do miracles. He can make blind people see. He can make lame people walk. There's no one else who can do that kind of thing. There was nobody then. There's nobody now. Nobody since then. Between, that is supernatural power. And they bear witness to who he is. Go back to Matthew 11. Matthew 11. Starting in verse 2. Now when John, is talking about John the Baptist, while imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one? Are you the Messiah? Are you the promised deliverer and king that we've been waiting for all these years? Are you the expected one? Or... Shall we look for someone else? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, and the lame walk. He's mentioned some other miracles, but those are the exact two things he did in the temple that day. Heal blind people made lame people walk. So do you see what he's getting at? By performing the miracles Isaiah had prophesied the Messiah would do when he came, Jesus was sending the message, the expected Messiah is here. The promised king is here. He's the only one who can meet these kind of miracles. So Jesus has already made some big claims on Palm Sunday. He says, I'm your king. He says, I have the right to say what goes in God's house, and the miracles I perform confirm that I am the promised Messiah. But he's about to make an even more astonishing claim about he is, who he is. So back in Matthew 21. Verse 15 says. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things he had done, like making all these blind people see and all these lame people walking around again, and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant. And said to him, do you hear what these children are saying? So they not only saw Jesus heal the blind and the lame with their own eyes, they couldn't deny that supernatural healings were taking place. Nobody tried to say he did it with tricks or it was a fake. Like you might see on TV or something. There were miracles happening right in front of them. They didn't try to 
deny that. And they not only saw the miracles, they heard the voices of children who were crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. So just so fitting every year we have the kids sing on Palm Sunday. It's just not just because it's cute, but because it's biblical to have the children singing Hosanna to Christ. And what was their reaction? They didn't think it was cute that the kids were singing. It, their reaction was they were indignant. If you look it up in the dictionary, that means filled with anger, aroused by something unjust or unworthy, righteous anger about what one considers unfair or shameful. So instead of joining the children and joyfully praising Jesus, they're mad. They're angry at the children for saying the kind of things they're saying about Jesus, and they're mad at Jesus for accepting and approving of what the children are saying about him. They think it's shameful that Jesus would think he is worthy of such expressions of honor. And so they ask him a question, do you hear what these children are saying? They weren't just checking out to find out if his ears were working. They were checking out if he realizes what these children are actually saying about him. Does he get the significance of the lofty words they're crying out or shouting? And if he does understand that they're praising him as if he's the long-awaited Messiah, then why in the world doesn't he tell them to stop? And Jesus answers their question, and then he asks them a question. So... Verse 16, and Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise for yourself? So I'd like to read something from John Piper. Jesus' answer is crystal clear in its simplicity. First, he says, yes. Do you hear what these kids are saying, Jesus? They are calling you the son of David. They are calling you the bringer of deliverance and salvation. They're calling you the king of Israel. Do you hear this? Yes. There's a whole world of meaning in that word. Yes, I hear and I approve I receive what they are saying. They are not mistaken. They are not blaspheming. They are not foolish. They just seem foolish to you, the wise and the strong and the important. And then he quotes Psalm 8, verse 2. But why did Jesus cite this psalm? When Jesus cited Psalm 8, 2, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. The meaning in the psalm was clearly praise to God. But these children were saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Their praise was directed to Jesus. Jesus knew that, and the chief priests and scribes knew that. So, 
It is jaw-dropping when Jesus says, I will tell you what is happening here. Psalm 8 verse 2 is happening. God is being praised by these children. When these children praise me as the Messiah, the son of David, they are praising God because that is who I am. Doesn't that just blow you away? I, I think this week might have been the first time I got that connection. <laughs> I knew Jesus was claiming to be king. That was real obvious from the Zechariah text. <laughs> I didn't really catch the miracles attesting to the fact he's king till not that long ago. And definitely the authority in the temple, but I'm God. The kids singing to me, I'll back that up with Psalm 8 and say, I'm worthy of the same kind of honor and praise that is due to God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I never saw that before, and maybe you didn't either, but it's there. It's right there. You see it again in John chapter 5. If you want to turn to John chapter 5. So the last part of verse 17, Jesus says, My Father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Why? Because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. So they didn't miss that. They didn't miss that son of God means I'm claiming to be equal with God the Father, and they were going to kill him for that. That's blasphemy if it's not true. And then down in verse 22 and 23, Jesus is responding to them when they have their rocks in their hands ready to stone him like they did multiple times, chapter 8 and chapter 10. They're picking up stones to stone him for blasphemy, for saying these audacious things like, I'm equal with God. 22, not even the father judges everyone. He has given all judgment to the son so that all will honor the son, me, even as they honor the father. See that? I'm worthy of the same honor that's due the father. And if anyone does not honor the Son, doesn't honor the Father who sent him. So Jesus says, I hear the kids praising, and I'll quote Psalm 8 to say that's ultimately praise to God in order to make the claim, I'm worthy of the same honor as God. So Palm Sunday confronts us with the same question that came up 2,000 years ago on the first Palm Sunday. Who is this? And some people still say he's a prophet. There's a billion Muslims today that say Jesus is a prophet. He's not as good as Muhammad, but he's a prophet. Most Jews are willing to concede Jesus is a prophet. A lot of people will go that route or that he's a great religious 
teacher or he's a great moral example or he's a misunderstood martyr. There's all kinds of thoughts out there about Jesus, but they all fall short of what Jesus himself claims to be on the first Palm Sunday. Namely, I am the king who is worthy of your heartfelt worship and I'm worthy of your loyal allegiance and I'm worthy of your glad obedience. That's who I am. All on Palm Sunday, he said all of that. That's big. We're way beyond just, isn't it cute to see kids waving palm branches? We're saying this Jesus is either the craziest person who's ever walked the planet, or he's deliberately lying, or he's really God in the flesh, the king of all people, and worthy of worship and obedience. Those are the choices. And we need to be aware, just in case this isn't clear, he's not just saying that to ethnically Jewish people in the land of Israel in the first century. He is claiming to be the king of the whole world and everyone in it for all time. And I get that from the very next verse in Zechariah 9 that Jesus deliberately was fulfilling. So go to Zechariah 9. Zechariah 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So there's... Palm Sunday, that's what Matthew quotes in verse 5. Keep reading. Keep reading. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The bow of war will be cut off. And he, who's the pronoun he referring to? The king who's coming on a donkey. And he will speak peace to the nations. That's the whole world. And his dominion, his reign as king, will be from sea to sea and from the river, the rephrase, to the ends of the earth. In other words, this king is king, not just of Jewish people, of every people, peoples, ethnic groups, all ethnic groups, all over the world. And by riding in on a donkey deliberately to fulfill Zechariah 9.9, he's also saying, I'm also Zechariah 9.10. And he's saying that this morning. I'm king. I'm the king. I'm your king. I'm your rightful king. Or Matthew 28.18, all authority has been given to me. Where? In heaven? And on earth, the whole earth. Jesus has all authority over this whole planet. Abraham Kuyper was the prime minister of the Netherlands uh, a generation ago. He has this great quote that says, There is not one square inch of the entire creation over which Jesus Christ does not declare, This is mine. Not one square inch. Not one moment of time that Jesus isn't rightfully Lord that says, this is mine. I own this. 
I rule this. It's mine because I'm king. So then the question is, how will you and I respond to Jesus' claim to be our rightful king? And it's very interesting to me that right before he entered Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday, he told a parable about kings. So go to Luke 19, Luke chapter 19. And we'll start in verse 11. While they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable. Why did he tell this story? Because he was near Jerusalem. And they were supposing that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So he said, a nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And he called 10 of his slaves and gave them 10 minas and said to them, do business with this until I come back. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. So then Jesus tells a story about faithful stewards of minas entrusted to them. And then look at how the parable ends in 27 and 28. So first one, the parable itself is about stewards, but he comes back to that phrase about not wanting this man to reign over us. But these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. After he had said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he approached Bethphage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives, he said to the disciples, go get the donkey. Do you see the sequence? I'm going to come into Jerusalem. I'm going to be announcing I'm king. And not everybody wants me to be king. So I'm going to tell you a story. There's going to be people in Jerusalem and America and the whole world that say, we don't want this Jesus to be reigning over us. And what happens to them? They're destroyed. All of us are born rebels who do not want Jesus to reign over us. We don't want anyone, including Jesus, to tell us what to do. We don't want anyone to tell us how to live our lives, including Jesus. We want to be our own king. We don't want to have to answer to anyone else. We want to be autonomous, self-governing, self-everything. It's, I'm it. And all of us, therefore, deserve to be condemned and punished for our rebellion against the real king. You and I are not the real kings of this place. Jesus is. And so it's treason to shake our fist at heaven and say, Jesus, no, I don't want you to reign over me. I want to reign over me. Leave me alone. I'm going to do my own thing, my own way. 
and just leave me alone. That's all of us. That's how we're all born. But the good news that we're going to be celebrating Good Friday and Easter is that Jesus is a king who dies for rebels like us. He didn't have to do that. He could have just had us destroyed like the people in the story. Right? He didn't owe that to any of us. But the reason he's coming to Jerusalem that first Palm Sunday is to fulfill his mission on the first Good Friday. And here's one summary Jesus himself gives, Mark 10, 45. The Son of Man has come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's why Jesus is coming to Jerusalem, to give his life a ransom for many. A ransom is a price that's paid to set someone free. It's closely related to the word redeem, set free by a price. So this is from Leon Morris. He says, in the ancient world, the ransom was the price paid for release. It applied widely to the release of prisoners of war or of slaves. In certain circumstances, a man under sentence of death might be released by the payment of a ransom. There is always a plight into which a man has fallen, be it captivity or slavery or condemnation. There is always the payment of that price which affects the release, and it is this price that is called the ransom. Like the prisoner of war, man is in the power of the enemy. Christ has paid that ransom, freeing him and bringing him back where he belongs. The sinner is a slave. He is in bondage to his sins. Christ has paid the price to release the sinner, and the result is he is a free man. The sinner is under sentence of death on account of his sin. His life is forfeit. But the forfeited lives of many are liberated by the surrender of Christ's life. So that's what we're celebrating on Good Friday, that Jesus pays the price of his own blood, takes the wrath of God on himself that's due on rebels like us in order to freely and justly pardon rebels who turn to him in faith. And so if God is convicting you this morning, turn from your sinful rebellion. You might get away with it for 40 or 50 or 60 years. And then that rebellion will be crushed. And trust in Jesus as the only one who can set you free from the guilt and the penalty and the captivity of sin. Believe he rose from the dead on the first Easter. That's what we're celebrating next Sunday. To show God had accepted this payment, this ransom, on behalf of those who put their hope in him. In John 5, 24, right after saying, I'm worthy of the same honor as the fathers do, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. So believe in the Lord Jesus. And for those who are believing in Christ as your only hope, as your ransom from sin, 
Here's a quote from J.C. Ryo in the 1800s. Let all who trust in Christ take comfort in the thought that they build on a sure foundation. It is true that we are sinners, but Christ has borne our sins. It is true that we are poor, helpless debtors, but Christ has paid our debts. It is true that we deserve to be shut up forever in the prison of hell, but thanks be to God, Christ has paid a full and complete ransom for us. Let's pray. So Lord Jesus, we thank you that you paid the ransom, not to the devil, not to anybody else, to God the Father, the price of our redemption, the price to purchase us, to set us free from sin and death and hell itself, to bring us to God and enjoy heaven forever in his presence. Lord, we can't thank you enough for coming to do that for people who did not deserve that. We deserve to be punished as rebels and you rescued us instead. So I pray for anyone who's here this morning listening to these words, Lord, that they would turn from their rebellion against you as their rightful king and gladly submit themselves to you. And Lord, I pray that those who have trusted in you, Lord, would gladly own you as our king, gladly serve you as our king, gladly honor you as our king. It's in your name we pray. Amen. We're going to stand.